right, we're in Revelation chapter 2. We are going to be going through chapters 2 and 3 with a bird's eye view this morning. Revelation 119 contained Jesus' command to John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And in this command, Jesus has effectively provided an outline for the entire book of Revelation. Chapter one we saw was the vision that John had of the glorified Christ. That is the things which he's seen. Chapters two and three address the churches. These are the things which are presently in this church age. And chapters four through 22 are going to deal with the things which will take place after this, metatauta. That is everything that is to come after the church is taken out, after the church things. And this morning we'll be focusing on chapters two and three as a whole. And we've already come through them with an eye for their local and historical setting. There's seven design elements, and we've looked at these things through a magnifying glass. We've zoomed in and we've taken our time coming through each of these churches. But the goal today is to view all of the letters together as one cohesive package. And in taking this bird's eye view, I'm hoping that we'll be able to pick out some patterns that seem to emerge in our text. So first, let's review real quickly these four levels of application for these letters. In each letter, we find the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this little phrase tips us off to three of the four levels of application. The first is the local application. Jesus is speaking to an actual congregation that had very real problems. Each church that he writes to is a historical congregation. He also uses analogies in each of these letters that would relate to those people in that time. The second application is personal or homiletic. He who has an ear, let him hear. So Jesus is also speaking to anyone who has a heart with the right attitude to hear what he's saying. That is, whoever is willing to hear his correction. And each one of us can apply something from each of these letters in our own lives. The third application is the admonitory application to all churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word churches is plural. And in Revelation 1.11, Jesus instructs John to send the whole book of Revelation that he's going to write, which contains all seven of these letters, to each one of the seven churches listed. Why was he instructed to send it to all seven churches? Because every church receiving the revelation could draw application from reading the letters sent to the other churches, as well as to their own. And every congregation, even today, has at least a piece of each one of these churches' character. Why did Jesus choose to only send these letters to seven churches? Well, it seems that he's trying to convey the idea of totality. There is a totality to what he's saying to the churches. In scripture, 
the number seven is representative of the idea of completion. And it looks like Jesus is also trying to tell us that the remarks in these letters are to the church in totality. And this last application began to be recognized a couple centuries after the writing of Revelation. That is the fourth and final application, the prophetic application. And it's possible that Victorinus, who was the Bishop of Pitot, who died in 303 AD, was the first to endorse this prophetic um, application of the text. This theory says that the letters of Revelation line up with major periods of church history. And I think there's a good case to be made there. And as you begin to look at these letters with church history in mind, it's hard to escape the possibility that each church Jesus addresses lines up thematically with an era in church history. This is the application that we'll be paying the most attention to this morning. And I do want to remind you that when the book of Revelation was written in roughly 95 AD, most of church history was still in the future. But where we stand today, most of these things are in the past. So the reason we're calling it the prophetic significance or application is because John, the writer of Revelation, and his contemporaries would not have seen the majority of these events come to pass. But Jesus was dictating to John things that would happen in the future. Now let's begin looking at these letters with an eye for this prophetic significance. Now the dates I've used, and we've got a graphic for you, these dates are not necessarily universally agreed upon. Um, even by those who share this prophetic interpretation, chapters 2 and 3. But these are the dates that I think best line up with the content of the letters and what we find in church history. So we'll look real quick, and we'll go through all of these in the individual letters, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But I want you to notice that the first three letters have what we're calling the promise to the overcomer in the postscript, or the PS of the letter. Um, it comes after the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the first three. Now the last four have that promise to the overcomer in the body of the letter. And if nothing else, this nicely packages them into two groups for us, the first three and the last four. The last four letters seem to correspond to church systems that are still around today and will be until the end of the present church age. Now we're going to break back into chapter 2 in Revelation, starting with the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus represents the apostolic church. That is the church of the first century from about 30 AD, and this would be about the time of Pentecost, give or take, to the end of the first century. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on those in Acts 2. Jesus specifically instructed the disciples not to do anything until they had received the Holy Spirit. 
And so the disciples waited until then to go out. And thus the church was born. And this period wraps up around 100 AD, a few years after this book of Revelation was written. This would have been the only part of this prophetic timeline that John would have seen. The name of Ephesus means desired one. And this points to the fact that this church age was desired of Christ. And we'll see why that is. The Gospels in the book of Acts provide the Christian with the only true model of what the church should look like, how it should function. But unfortunately, only a minority of professing Christians throughout history have held strictly to the model given in the Gospels and Acts. But there have always been at least a small group of Christians who sought to stick to this plan for the church. Although the minority, they've always been there. The apostolic church started off strong in Acts, but with only a few years, the apostles had to write to many of these congregations correcting their behavior. And these are some epistles that we have. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church twice, correcting their tendency towards worldliness. He warned the Galatians about the dangers of legalism, and he urged them toward grace. So even within this first century, we see things starting to derail. You know, the people start taking over. We lose sight of Christ and people take over. That's when it gets messy. In verse 2, to this church of Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. The expectation of the apostles was almost immediately after he ascended into heaven, they expected his return to set up his kingdom. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that if they're able to remain unmarried, they should do so because the time is short. We find that in 1 Corinthians 7.29. And there was a rumor circulating among Christians that Jesus told John that he would not die until Jesus returned to set up his kingdom. But John actually dispels this notion in the last chapter of his gospel. John 21, 22, and 23 reads, Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So in summary, Jesus didn't say that John would remain alive until his coming, but he told Peter, let me take care of John. I want you to worry about your walk with me. Oh, it was not what many of the Christians had taken it as. And by the closing of this first century, there was a patience beginning to develop concerning the return of Christ. But even still, the doctrine of imminency, the expectancy of Christ's imminent return, was still very strong at the end of the first century. They still believed his return was the next event on the prophetic timeline but they started to become 
more and more patient concerning that. And this sentiment is reflected in the expectation of his imminent return in the epistles. James urges Christians to be patient in waiting for the Lord's coming. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In these two verses, he expresses both the need for patience and the fact that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus also says, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So Jesus commends this apostolic church for its healthy immune system. Under the strong leadership of the apostles and some of the early church fathers, false teachers were dealt with well. Among others, John writes his first epistle, and Paul writes to the Colossians, addressing some of these early Gnostic heresies that begin to pop up in the early church. We know that the church was efficient at keeping sound doctrine through this first century, even while the books contained in our New Testament were still being written. This church didn't tolerate those who were evil and tested those claiming to have apostolic authority that didn't. In verse 3, Jesus says, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. The laboring of the early church was for Christ, not for selfish gain, for popularity, or for a platform, just for Christ. There was a purity of intention, a purity of motivation here. Nevertheless, so verse 4 is where Jesus shifts from commending them to condemning them. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, be careful with this. They have not lost their first love, only left their first love. This isn't a question of salvation, but by the closing of the first century, the church had started to move away from that fervor that they once had for Christ. It seems that their spiritual temperature had started cooling off. And in verse 5, Jesus calls his church to action. He says, remember, repent, and return. These are the actionable steps that Jesus calls this church to. Verse 6 mentions the Nicolaitans. It says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll remind you, Nikeo in the Greek is domineering. It means to conquer. And Laos is people. So Nicolaitans sought to domineer the laity or the common people. Jesus said that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he also commends this apostolic church for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the general tenor of the apostolic church was definitely against the separation or delineation of laity and clergy. 
Um, these were just regular guys who were gifted with the Holy Spirit who taught other people. Um, that's really the, the long and short of that. One of the defining characteristics of the early church is their autonomy between congregations. There was no one institution set up to govern all of the different bodies. But we do see them functioning um, as different parts of the one body of Christ. Each congregation was free to conduct evangelistic efforts, to gather and to thrive in the manner that best suited their local context. And I hope that seeing these letters in their local context, as we've gone through them carefully, has made you have a a better appreciation for how autonomous and unique they were. In verse 7, I want you to pay attention to the promise that Jesus makes to the overcomer. There's something special about these promises and how they're laid out that we'll come back to at the end. This promise to the overcomer comes in the PS of the letter. He says, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And that brings us to the letter to Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church. And that time period is from about 100 the turn of the century to 313, when Constantine issues his Edict of Toleration. This era of church history is characterized by the intense persecution that came upon it. This persecution was led by the Roman Empire. This was an imperial-led persecution. And the Nicolaitans are not mentioned by Jesus in this church, But looking at church history, it seems that the separation of clergy and laity began to take root during this time. This is somewhere between the church hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans and allowing those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we'll see in Pergamos. This idea of separation was beginning to form And we'll see wider acceptance as we move closer and closer towards the Pergamos period. Demetrius, the bishop of Alexandria, was indignant at Origen for instructing bishops because Origen was a layman himself. So even in this, that was um, Demetrius had excommunicated Origen in 231 A.D., So even in this Smyrna time period, we're seeing this division uh, start to crop up. Remember that the name Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh was used as a burial spice, and it represents death. Christ also identifies himself to this church as the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. It was as if he was saying, I know the kind of persecution and even the death that you're going through. But don't fear, because I have conquered death. In verse 9, he says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. So Jesus references their hardships using the word philipsis. And that's the Greek for persecution, tribulation here, um, any kind of a hardship. 
He's saying that he's aware of their works. And specifically to this church, it's good works. The fact that they're facing hardships and the fact that many of them have given up good livings to serve him. And this was what resulted in their poverty. But he also says that they are spiritually rich. The church that endured the imperial persecution in this time period had everything material taken away from them. But this fiery trial did something for them. It refined their faith, which contributed to their spiritual wealth. But you are rich. This church age saw eight of the ten Roman emperors who brought persecution on the church. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Severus, Maximinius, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. The first two, Nero and Domitian, came right before the turn of the century. Um, So the book of Revelation, written in 95, would have been right at the end of Domitian's reign. And this is actually one of the factors that allows us to date this book so precisely. And then in 306, Constantine became emperor and put an end to persecution by the Roman government. In 313, he issued his Edict of Toleration, which granted to everyone the freedom to choose his own religion. Verse 11, the promise to the overcomer comes after the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And this promise also has to do with death. We see a a pattern here. It's an assurance to the overcomer that the first death they face, and many of them facing that death, at the hands of Rome, would be the only death that they faced. But the enemies of Christ have another death to worry about. That is an eternal separation from God, the second death, which is referred to in Revelation 21.8. Now, this edict of toleration will bring us into our next period of church history, that of the married church. Pergamos begins with the Edict of Toleration and ends around the close of the 6th century. I'll remind you that the prefix per means mixed or objectionable, and the suffix gamos means marriage. So in this name Pergamos, we have a mixed or an objectionable marriage. And this is Christ's main concern for this church, that is being married to the world, and more specifically, the pagan practices that were espoused by the Roman Empire. And it was during this period of church history that the church really took to the idea of having a single governing structure over all of the congregations. This abandoned the model of acts, the model of autonomous bodies, for the protection of the state. They traded in their autonomy for protection from the state. 
Constantine was supposedly a Christian himself, and he assumed the position of both emperor of Rome and head of the church. And we even see him taking on the title that the pagan high priest once used, Pontifex Maximus. Now, under Constantine, Christianity was legalized in Rome, but it wasn't until Theodosius took power in 378 that Christianity became the state religion. So I want to make that distinction clear. Constantine made Christianity legal. Theodosius made Christianity the state religion. Theodosius is the one who made you become members of the church. And that turned out to be the most devastating move that the church has ever made. Um, It was even more destructive to the church than the persecution of the Roman Empire. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you speaking to this church at Pergamos, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So during this church era, idolatry was introduced into the church. Stumbling blocks to God's people, if you will. And the church began to gradually become more and more Roman and less and less Christian. In 375, we see the worship of saints and angels come onto the scene. And in 431, the worship of Mary is instituted. And we see some more idolatry mentioned in the letter to Thyatira, which we'll come to next. Now concerning the Nicolaitans, in this church period. By the time the Pergamos era comes around, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which we saw in the apostolic church, were hated. But those deeds have now become strengthened into doctrine. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans takes root in the state church. The clergy has become galvanized and is dominating the general population. This is something of which Jesus emphatically says, I hate. In 500 AD, priests began to dress differently than the lay people in an effort to stand out amongst them. In 600, worship services began to be conducted in Latin. This was a language mostly unknown by the common people. So you would come to church and you would listen to the Bible read in a language that you didn't speak. But even in the midst of all this, and Jesus even refers to Satan as dwelling in this Pergamos era, Jesus does have some good things to say to this church. He says, You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. So there were aspects of this church era characterized by steadfastness in Christ's name and steadfastness in his faith. I would suppose that this refers in part to, one, the men who faithfully defended the faith, and also to the councils in which certain heresies were condemned um, and addressed. 
The Arian controversy is one that stands out. Arius, the man, denied the personal deity of Jesus Christ and supposed that he was a created being. This heresy became known as Arianism. And the same general concept of Christ that's espoused by the JWs comes from this idea of Arianism. Christ is chief among created beings in this pattern of thought, but Christ is not God himself. The Council of Nicaea in 325 was called to address this controversy, and the council was united in their stand for the personal deity of Christ. Due in large part to this stand, the church did not teach anything but the personal deity of Christ for over a thousand years. Macedonianism, also called uh, Pneumatomachian heresy, denied the full personhood and divinity of the Holy Spirit and taught that he was created by the Son. It's weird stuff. This would make the Holy Spirit subordinate to both the Father and the Son. And this was addressed at the First Council of Constantinople in 381. Nestorianism states that Christ exists as two separate natures, one divine and the other human, who were only loosely united. The councils of Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon in 451 address this heresy of Nestorianism. Pelagianism basically denied that original sin tainted human nature, and it asserted that human beings have the ability to never sin. If this were true, the sacrifice of Christ was not needed because we would have already have within us everything necessary for salvation, that is, a perfect life. Augustine fought Pelagianism hard, and the Council of Ephesus denounced this teaching of Pelagius. Now, monophysitism basically states that the human nature of Jesus was completely absorbed by his divine nature, leaving only his divine nature. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 declared that in Christ, there are two natures united in one person. And this is what we still hold to today. And in 553, the Second Council of Constantinople again defended against the Nestorian heresy. And you see on the screen these different councils and what they were called to address. Do you notice something that all these heresies have in common? In some way, each of these attempt to taint the person of Jesus Christ. They are attacks on the name of Christ. But these first five ecumenical councils, which were the ones that met during this Pergamos period, were firm in their stance for Christ. Now, that is not to say that any of the ecumenical councils that follow were spot on, and not to say that these were completely spot on, but there were some great defenses of Jesus made in these councils. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. 
And now the promise to the overcomer. He says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And that brings us to chapter 2, verse 18, the church of Thyatira. Thyatira uh, is known prophetically as the papal church or the medieval church. This period opens in 590 when Gregory I assumed the papacy. And Gregory I was widely regarded as the first pope. And he was actually very good. Uh, Public opinion of him was very high, and he did his job well. He did many good things while he held the papacy. But after Gregory I, things go downhill pretty quickly. Um, And this period of Thyatira era church will wrap up in 1517 when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door at the Wittenberg church. Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, this commendation bears comment because it should be noted that the outreach and the service that has flowed out from the Catholic Church is second to none. The Catholic Church has really done a great job of serving, you know, orphanages, homes for the homeless, um, relief efforts. I don't think you can find another organization that has done more philanthropic work. And some truly remarkable people have come out of this church. Jesus recognized this and commended them for it. I think it would be good of us to do the same. But he also says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. When you boil it down, and we looked at this in detail several weeks ago, this is an accusation for allowing idolatry and sin into the church. I won't dig too deeply into the sin problem surrounding the papacy this morning, but if you want to be blown away, I would recommend uh, the phenomenal work of Dave Hunt, A Woman Rides the Beast. And he takes this from a historical perspective, and he very clearly outlines the history of the Catholic Church, and he highlights some very deep-rooted problems within it. It's a dense read, but it's worth the effort if you're interested in this area. That's Dave Hunt's A Woman Rides the Beast. And because we've already spent quite some time looking at the prophetic implications of Thyatira itself, I'm going to summarize what we see in this time period. The condemnation referring to Jezebel is interesting because we see an account of her leading an inquisition against Naboth in 1 Kings 21. She effectively accuses Naboth of heresy, has him killed, and then takes possession of his land for her husband. 
that's King Ahab. This seems to parallel the inquisitions of the Roman Catholic Church. During the inquisitions, the Catholic Church led the persecution of certain Christian groups. These groups would hold to the authority of Scripture, not the authority of the papacy. And this was their main fault in the eyes of the Catholics. The result of these inquisitions was the accumulation of vast amounts of land and wealth for the church. Church history is altogether an ugly thing, especially once you get past the account in Acts, things start going downhill real quick. And I will not tell you that I have a defense of the church. Whenever people are involved, things tend to get messy. So I won't defend the church's history, but I can defend Jesus Christ because he is the example that we should follow and not the messy church. And in verse 22, Christ threatens to throw those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, the promise to cast them into the tribulation if they do not repent leads to the conclusion that if they do repent, they will not be cast into the great tribulation. So those who hold fast to Jesus, even if they're found amongst a broken church system, will be spared from God's judgment on the world. And in verse 24, Jesus addresses this remnant of believers for the first time. Now, he's speaking specifically to those in Thyatira who do not have this doctrine that is of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan. He tells this faithful group to simply hold fast to what they have, and that's him. Verse 26 This is the first promise to the overcomer that we find listed in the body of a letter. And it's the first time that this remnant is mentioned. Verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And I also have received from my father and I will give him the morning star. It's interesting to me that the overcomers in Thyatira are promised this power over the nations, which is exactly what the Catholic church was chasing all those years. And this brings us to our next church, the church of Sardis. And we take this as referring to the Reformed Church from 1517 to 1790. The Reformation era opens with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. But this was not the beginning of discontentment with the Catholic Church. There have always been groups who have held to the Acts model for the church, even through the zenith of the Roman power. Luther's theses, and later in 1520, his excommunication from the Catholic Church, is said to be the spark that set Europe aflame. 
This kindled what we know as the Reformation. There were major changes brought about in the doctrines of Scripture, salvation, and the church. But Jesus says that he has not found their works perfect, that is complete, before God. What could he possibly be referring to? What is lacking in their doctrine? Let's take a look at their doctrine of eschatology leading up to the Reformation. The amillennial perspective was solidified by origin of the third century. It caught on in the early state church with Augustine's support. Now, the amillennial view is that there will not be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Rather, this reign occurs in the heart of all those who believe. That is the amillennial position. I want you to think about it. If you are the Roman government and you are espousing Christianity now as your state religion, and people come along teaching that Jesus is going to return to topple the governments of the world and set up his own kingdom, that don't sound too good. You know, I don't think that they would have been too happy about teaching people that. So this amillennial view caught on rather quickly in the state church, the era of Pergamos. And it really gained support under Augustine um, when Augustine supported it. So the Catholic Church adopted amillennialism as their official stance. And the problem with the Reformation that I think Jesus is referring to is the Reformation's lack of attention to eschatological issues in the Catholic Church. They sought to reform doctrines of the Bible, the Church, and salvation, but their works were not found complete in the realm of eschatology. That's the study of the last things. In large part, the Reformers retained the amillennialism of the Catholic Church until about the 1800s. So what's the big deal with amillennialism versus premillennialism? Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that um, amillennialism is a heresy. I wouldn't view it as such. But it does take a certain fervor out of the Christian life. If you're not expecting the imminent return of Christ, that takes an edge off of the Christian. Christians who are informed and expectant of Christ's return tend to be more consecrated and more evangelistic than those who are not watching for Christ's return. What is Christ's admonition to Sardis? He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, which are, I believe, the biblical doctrines they managed to salvage. And he says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In effect, he's saying that if they don't watch for his coming, they won't be prepared for his arrival. And in verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
And this takes us to the church of Philadelphia. Everybody wants to be um, identified with this church at Philadelphia. There was no condemnation given to Philadelphia, only commendation. And Philadelphia is seen as the missionary church. And this period starts around the mid-18th century and is characterized by a great movement toward missionary work. The Spirit of God so burdened an English shoe cobbler for the lost people of India that in 1793, William Carey became the first foreign missionary in modern history. The Spirit moved many people during this era to follow this calling to foreign missions, and the faith missionary movement had begun. There was indeed an open door set before the church of this period. There was also a return to the earlier model of the church that was exhibited by the church of Ephesus and some Smyrna area churches. Church bodies became more autonomous and they were a little bit smaller. They separated themselves further from the state churches. And I want to note too that even several mainline reformed denominations fell to the trap of becoming state churches. We won't get into that too far, but recognize that this Philadelphia era church tended to separate themselves from the state. Jesus said that this church of Philadelphia had a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So whereas the Sardis church held fast to their doctrine, they knew about God and they knew about his word. They were not characterized by their obedience to it. But Philadelphia takes it the necessary step further. They kept his word. They obeyed it. They didn't just read it and know it, but they kept it. There were two major factors in this era that led to such an astonishing missionary effort. The first, the Bible was already being printed in the language of the people. This came about during the time right before the Reformation, uh, which actually contributed to the Reformation as well. The Gutenberg Press was invented. This allowed mass production of printed documents, the Bible being the most popular. And this large-scale production of Scripture and people's natural tendency to take the Bible literally led them to obeying the Scripture. When you read in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, they actually took that as a command from Jesus to go preach the gospel. Crazy idea, I know. And the second event or reason for this missionary effort was around the year 1800. The doctrine of the premillennial return of Christ made a resurgence in popularity. This idea was revived from roughly 1600 years of slumber, and it fostered an evangelistic zeal in the people. 
They wanted to go out and fulfill the Great Commission in preparation for their Lord's return. In verse 12, we read the promise to the overcomer. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. This brings us to the last of these letters. Laodicea is seen as the apostate church. This is from about AD 1900 to whenever the end of the church age comes about. The Laodicean church is characterized by their indifference, their apathy. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, says Jesus. The material prosperity of this church is staggering, but it comes at a spiritual price. The price they've paid is compromise. Compromise in the church produces spiritual poverty, and that's exactly what we see from this church. Jesus says they do not know they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He gives them three bits of counsel to turn around their spiritual state. First, he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and the third, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. And in each of these pieces of counsel, Jesus is framed as the provider. In him, they will find all that they need. And these things can be theirs through faith. They're not sold to the highest bidder, but to the lowly sinner. And I've been blown away by very recent compromises I've seen within the church. It seems that the church is trying to fit in with the world instead of being set apart from the world. There are some breathtakingly worldly practices that can be found in the professing church today, and many of them are stemming from the realm of alternative spirituality and the New Age movement, and this is terrifying for us to see. Some of these involvements in New Age spirituality, and this is just coming from this little subcategory, Um, By no means are these the only worldly practices that are happening right now. Some of these include Christ alignment, uh, Christianized card use, tarot cards, angel boards, Ouija boards, Christianized yoga, the belief in karma, Mother Earth, prayer labyrinths, and contemplative prayer. If you don't know what some of these are, I'm kind of glad for that. Uh, You you certainly don't need to go Google them if you don't want to. But I just make mention of these to make you aware that these things exist. And there is some weird and wacky stuff going on in the church. Um, I would just encourage you to hold fast to the Word of God. 
We shouldn't approach such, such things with a demeanor of compromise like Laodicea did, but a demeanor of protection. We should be protecting the integrity of God's word, which condemns practices like divination and protecting the flock that's been entrusted to us. These practices, among countless others, leave Jesus on the outside of the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we actually see this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, repeated seven times in the gospel by Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven fifteen, thirteen nine, and 13, 43, Mark 4, 23, Mark 7, 16, Luke 8, 8, and Luke 14, 35. Now, we're going to look at these promises to the overcomer. With the last promise to the overcomer, I want to point out something that you may have missed with a casual reading of these letters. It appears that these promises deliberately come in an order that mirrors the narrative contained in the Bible. They are in timeline order. The promises are listed in an order that corresponds with major events from the beginning of creation up to the consummation of the kingdom of God in heaven. Look at this. In Ephesus, we see the tree of life in the paradise of God is promised. This is an answer to Genesis 2.9. In Smyrna, sin entered the world and death entered by sin. That's Genesis 3. But to the faithful at Smyrna, it's promised, they shall not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamos, the promise of the hidden manna. And this brings us to the Mosaic period, the church in the wilderness. Um, At that time, Israel, of course. Thyatira. To Thyatira, triumph over the nations was promised. The period of David and Solomon were characterized by their power over the nations. Sardis, Christ promises to the believer of Sardis not to blot out the name from the book of life, but to confess him before his father and the angels at the judgment day and clothe him in white garments. To Philadelphia, the faithful in Philadelphia, Christ promises that they shall be the citizens of the new Jerusalem, fixed as immovable pillars there, where the city and the temple are one, the new Jerusalem. And lastly, in Laodicea, to the faithful of Laodicea is given the crowning promise of them all, a seat with Christ on his throne, as he has sat with his father on his father's throne. And we'll see many of these events unfold as we continue going through Revelation. Now, Last week, I asked you to familiarize yourself with Matthew chapter 13 and consider what links can be made between that passage and these seven churches in Revelation. 
I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 13, and we'll look at this real quick together. In this passage, Jesus tells a handful of parables, seven to be exact, and then he takes the disciples aside and privately explains three of these parables to the disciples. For our purposes, I'm going to take the explanations with the parables, just for the sake of continuity. But I want you to be aware that the explanations didn't necessarily follow the telling of the parables. We have seven parables to look at in chapter 13. The first is the parable of the sower. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is one of our instances of that phrase. Then we read in chapter 13, verses 18 through 23, Jesus' explanation of this parable of the sower. Jesus says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Okay, pay attention to this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So the soil is the heart of the hearer. The wicked one is the bird or the birds that come and snatch away the seeds. The seed is the word of God that's sown into the heart of the hearer. This is he who received seed by the wayside, verse 20. But he who received the seed on a stony place, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So we see in this explanation exactly what Jesus is talking about in this parable. You have three um, bad soils, if you will, and one good soil. The seed is the word of God. The sower is the son of man, which will be explained in verse 37 with the wheat and the tares. The soil is the heart of the hearer, and the birds are the wicked one, Satan. Now let's look at the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is verse 24 through 30. 
tares are a different plant that look like wheat while they're growing, but they'll turn black when they reach maturity. And if they get mixed up with wheat and you actually make bread out of the tares, it's poisonous. Interesting little tidbit. Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. We also get an explanation with this parable. We'll find that in verse 37. He answered and said to him, said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. So again, the son of man is the sower. The field is the world. Directly from Jesus. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers represent the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see the parable of the wheat and the tares. The sower is the Son of Man, the field is the world. Good seeds, the wheat, are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. The sower of the tares is Satan. The harvest is the judgment which comes at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Let's move on. Third parable, parable of the mustard seed. These get a lot shorter, so bear with me. Matthew thirteen thirty-one and 32. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there's a big problem with this picture. No one expects to see a mustard bush growing into the size of a tree. This is an abnormal growth. If you go to Israel, you can see the mustard plants, bushes, on the hillsides. 
and they're little, no taller than three foot bushes. And you won't normally see a bird nesting in a three foot bush. Generally, they want to be a little higher up. They feel a little safer that way. So it's strange. This is an abnormal growth that comes out of the mustard seed. Remember that birds are idiomatic of the evil one, of Satan. This parable is talking about the church experiencing abnormal growth, and the ministers of Satan are lodging in its branches. Sounds like Pergamos, the state church, abnormal expansion. The people, the pagans, were forced to become members of the church. Ministers of Satan coming and dwelling in the branches of this abnormally growing mustard seed. Next parable, parable of the woman and the leaven. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, in the Jewish mind, leaven is always a symbol of sin because it corrupts by puffing up. You may have heard preachers preaching on this verse saying that the leaven is like the word of God. You just put a little here and there, and pretty soon everything's great. That is literally the opposite of what this means. The leaven is a type of sin. Here, a woman is making meal. And from Genesis 18 on, this three measures of meal becomes a symbol of the fellowship offering. A Jew would be horrified if leaven was put in the fellowship offering. Parable number five, the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. What's the field represent? The world, which a man found and hid. Who is the man? And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Who's doing the purchasing of the world? Jesus Christ, of course. The pearl of great price, verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now this sounds a lot like the last one, but there's one major difference. Oysters are not kosher. This is a Gentile idiom. The Jews would not have prized a pearl like the Gentiles did. They may have traded in them because it was profitable on their end, but this seems to be drawing from a Gentile perspective. The pearl is unique among all other jewels because it's the only one that's made by a living organism as a response to an irritation. It's then removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. And it's a Gentile jewel. What a striking metaphor for the church. Placed 
a living organism. It's a response to an irritation. It's plucked out of the place of growth to become an item of adornment. Interesting. We'll move on. The seventh and final parable gets an explanation with its telling. And this is the telling of this parable and the explanation are directly to the disciples, not the multitude. The parable of the dragnet, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. I could kick him for that, couldn't you? Just explain all the rest. So we have these seven kingdom parables. I see some correlation between the kingdom parables and the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. I'm not being dogmatic here. You're welcome to completely throw this out the back door if you want to. But Ephesus seems to represent the sower and the soils. This is the early church. Smyrna, the tares and the wheat. We see these strange doctrines introduced, Gnosticism, Caesar worship, etc. Pergamos, the mustard seed, which I mentioned, the mustard seed grows so big that the birds come and nest in its branches. Thyatira, the woman, I think a parallel to the woman Jezebel, who introduces sin into the church. Sardis, we've got the treasure in the field. Philadelphia, the pearl of great price. And I think that the pearl of great price emphasizes the rapture, being snatched away from its place of growth. And Laodicea, the dragnet, and that's just the final cleanup, if you will. So consider this. You know, I think it's interesting. We're not going to make a sharp doctrinal position on this or anything, but good for consideration. Now, here's one more for your consideration, and we'll leave you with that. Paul wrote 13 letters included in our New Testament. Four of those were to individuals, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. He wrote to the Corinthians twice and the Thessalonians twice. That leaves seven churches that Paul wrote to. Now, these churches are Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. Is it possible that Paul's letters fit with the letters to the seven churches in Revelation? It seems fairly interesting to consider. If you look at Ephesus, I think that goes along with Ephesians. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Smyrna was a letter to the persecuted church. Is there an epistle that focuses on joy through persecution? Philippians. 
Pergamos was married to the world. Is there an epistle to a worldly church? That's the Corinthians. Thyatira was a call out of religious externalism. Which epistle focuses on grace, not works? Galatians. Sardis, this church was comfortable in their doctrine. What was Paul's definitive statement on doctrine? Romans. Philadelphia, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Which epistles had a special focus on the rapture? The epistles to the Thessalonians. In Laodicea, that leaves us with Colossians. It's the last one, and it's also addressed to a congregation in the same neighborhood as Laodicea. Also, at the end of the epistle to the Colossians, they were instructed to swap with Laodiceans. Paul wanted the Laodiceans to read what he had to say to the Colossians. And again, you know, just things for consideration, but it does seem that there are some parallels between Paul's letters to the churches and Jesus's letters to the churches. And sometimes we come across things that just make us appreciate the integrity of design within the word of God. And though I wouldn't want to draw too many conclusions from either the kingdom parables or this Paul's letters deal, it seems to be a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit on the text. And it's a nice reminder that the real author is not Paul and it's not John, but it is the Holy Spirit. And with that, we have made it through these seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. Um, And I'll let you rejoice when you go home today. But I will again pose this question. Why did Jesus choose these seven churches? And there are several acceptable answers to this question. First, these seven congregations in their respective cities at the end of the first century, this is the local application, had some very real problems that needed correcting. Jesus wrote to address those local problems. Jesus also recognized that these seven types of churches would represent every kind of church throughout history. Every church would be able to glean something of value from each of these letters. He also recognized that these seven churches would represent every kind of believer through history. Every Christian would be able to glean something of value from each of these letters. And it is my position that Jesus outlined the history of the church in advance for two main reasons. One, as a seal of his authorship. And two, for our study, learning, and application. As we study the letters, we learn what Jesus had to say to these churches, and we can apply these same lessons to our own lives. And next week, we'll break into chapter four, where we will get an inside look into the throne room of the universe. And that is going to be very exciting. So we will leave it at that. And I hope that you've gleaned something to take away from these seven letters. 
But as we close, let's do so in a word of prayer.